Wait times are up 30% in metros from the last few years. It averages 24 days now to see a doctor and months to see a specialist sometimes. In Boston, one of the worst cities, the average wait is 52 days to schedule an appointment with a family doc, a derm, a cardio, an orthopedic, or an OB-GYN. Gives a whole new meaning to family planning when you have to wait two months to see an OB-GYN, doesn't it? Growing wait times are the best indicator that we are experiencing a shortage of physicians. But remember, there are fixes for this. That's what this show's all about. And a big problem adding to delay these fixes. The silver tsunami is the fact that daily 10,000 baby boomers add to Medicare, and that happens again daily, 10,000 for nine more years. So do 365 times nine times 10,000. It's a big Medicare population that's growing. This decade, the number of Americans age 65 and older is going to grow by 55%. So just in the next eight to nine years. And it's going to make the projected shortages that we're talking about and the waits longer. So the shortages are going to get worse. We need two to three times as many services, especially in our older ages. So this, again, is just sort of magnifying this giant problem. But there's a cure, and it comes from three sources. My favorite one is one we're going to talk about today. So telehealth is not what we're talking about today, but it's up 40%. Pre-pandemic, it was about a 1% or 2% utilization, and now 40% of all visits are telehealth. It's super efficient because it turns out that 75 to 85% of PCP, PCP visits can be handled digitally. So less docs are needed when digital care replaces clunky office visits, and it's a lot more efficient for the doctor and the patient, a lot less of a time suck. Let's talk about nurses as a second source of the solution that kind of chaps a lot of doctors who still don't want to see nurses with the same scope of practice that they have, but I'm not going to judge that today. But they can now practice in 36 states across the borders more than doctors can with these reciprocal agreements that are flowing. So it's even easier opening the floodgates, though, for trained doctors that are already here. My favorite solution, what we would call an international medical graduate, who's our guest today. There's only one way to fix this fast, and it's a smart way, and already six states have loosened the regulations, so international medical graduates, I'll just call them IMGs, can skip a second residency. Because remember, every one of these folks have done a residency already in their home country. We have over 5,000 annually rejected because they're not getting a match on match day. So foreign NDs with an English competency to practice now can't get a slot, and the slotting has remained static since 1998. For 30 years. But here's how hospitals could easily expand slots. Because what's happening now is they're billing their residents out at 30 to 40 times what they pay for them. So it's a very highly profitable business for a teaching hospital to have residents. The idea that requires and, and that they're addicted to these federal subsidies. So there's about $660 million subsidizing the 60 to 65 grand that residents make. So the hospitals have basically no cost of labor and just this 30 to 40X rolling in for what the cost would be if they were paying it. The simple solution would be teaching hospitals could expand their slots because it's so profitable anyway, even if they were to pay the lousy 60 grand. And frankly, they're paying their head janitor more than 60 grand a year. So anyway, the bottom line is enlightened states are now allowing IMGs to skip their US residency as long as they practice with an American doc for three years. If you're from India, or Nigeria, or Mexico, and you've already done your residency, and you've already been trained and experienced, you already know you're the cream of the crop of your country. I mean, it's so hard to get just to that level. The very best of the very best are there. 
and when they get through their residency. But you just need to learn our ways. Canadian doctors already have a free pass to skip residency. Why? Because the AAMC blessed Canada and the AAMC could bless medical schools overseas tomorrow. So either get another slot and pay for it yourself or get the AAMC to wake up. Those are the two ways. Today's guest, Dr. Frank Okasun, has something to say about all this. He's an American-born doctor, but he studied in Nigeria when he moved back at 10 years old, and uh, he's now an internal medicine doc practicing near Houston. Welcome, Frank, to the show. Thank you for having me, Ron. So what do you have to say about all this stuff? Where do I start from? You have gone over so many pressing issues that we can talk all day about this. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head. The bottleneck is the residency positions. Like you said, there are um, a lot of highly trained and qualified foreign medical graduates in this country who currently cannot practice because of the bottleneck of no residency positions. Um, the federal government, like you said, had that freeze on the um, increasing positions. And we know that with the baby boomers, we are definitely going to need more doctors. So we can't be going by projections from 94 when they had the freeze on residency positions. Some states um, like Texas have tried to increase GME funding and increase um, residency slots. But um, unfortunately, their efforts have not been enough. And these doctors that we're talking about, these are highly trained uh, foreign medical graduates who have gone through all the requirements. They've passed the USMLE step one, two, three. And a lot of them are doing non-clinical jobs now, either in research, some are Uber drivers. And this is a big waste of talent because these folks are already trained and ready to go. You said something about some states who um, have um, loosened the requirements for some of these doctors to, um, to practice without residency. I think it's a first great step, but they also have some restrictions as well. Um, like I know the state of Missouri, they only accept foreign medical graduates who have graduated in the last three years. On average, it takes, the, uh, it takes the typical IMG about five to seven years to get to the US after graduation um, because some of them have mandatory internships and um, they have to study for their exams abroad. They have to work a little bit and they apply for visas and raise the required funds. Um, that they need to get to the United States. So it is very, very difficult for an IMG to get to the United States within that three to five year um, gap. And a lot of the American um, residency programs are coming up with more strict regulations on how they choose candidates. They want candidates who have graduated in the last three to five years. And like I said, with my previous explanation, it's very difficult for them um, to get here within, within that um, time frame. So it's a, it's a difficult conundrum of um, issues. And I feel so bad because I know some of these um, doctors who are highly trained, some of them are my colleagues and friends. And I know what they can offer and bring to the table, but unfortunately they cannot. 
And like you said, other advanced countries like Canada and the UK and even Australia, um, a lot of these doctors can go straight to work. And the healthcare in that country is not inferior or substandard to, to ours. So um, a lot of food for thought here. I, do you think some of that's xenophobia? I mean, it doesn't make any sense that an Australian doctor and a Chinese or Nigerian or Mexican uh, trained doctor, an Indian trained doctor has any less qualifications. I think it has to do with the way the system is set up. Unfortunately, America is a country is supposed to be a country of immigrants and built by immigrants, but it's not as easy coming into America to settle down and get acclimatized um, compared with other countries like the United Kingdom and um, and Canada. So there's kind of a stigma attached to foreign trained doctors or people with foreign um, credentials. So a lot of times um, a program director, if they have to choose between a American grad and a foreign grad with exactly the same qualifications, or even if the uh, foreign grad has higher USMLE scores, they tend to go with the um, American trained grad because they feel like they are already acclimatized into the system and um, they know what needs to be done. But it doesn't mean that the American trained doctor is better or superior to the, to the foreign, foreign trained um, physician. Um, you know, I've, I've worked with, uh, as partners, Indian doctors and Nigerian doctors, uh, doctors from South America, Central America, Mexico. Um, they're, the most shocking thing is just how hard they work. And, and this isn't just my opinion. This is a fact. Four medical graduates are willing to take, number one, internal medicine is not a popular field, and there's tons of internal medicine doctors uh, that are foreign medical, um, and also they're willing to go into rural areas. I guess they have to for in some states, but they um, are more willing to work in rural areas to underserve populations than American doctors are. So it's just a screaming answer to a giant problem. We have, I think, 15,000 pediatricians backlogged that are all IMGs. I don't know how many are family docs or internal medicine docs, but virtually everybody that's trained overseas is internal medicine. Is that right? Majority of the case. And like you said, um, a lot of these um, physicians um, are going to require visas. And with the H-1B program, um, they are more willing to work in um, underserved or rural areas. And they are willing to go into these um, most needed specialties like family medicine, pediatrics, internal medicines, because of the increasing um, student loan debt for American graduates. Um, in the last couple of years, there has been a shift away from primary care because it's considered um, less, um, less rewarding um, with a more difficult work-life balance. So it's not uncommon to see majority of American graduates going to watch high Spain specialties like radiology, anesthesiology, um, dermatology, orto orthopedics. I'll take it one step further, Frank, is that um, if you look at the finest schools, the top 20 medical schools, and you look at where they're being matched, very, very few are going into primary care. They're maybe one or two out of each class but they're mostly going into the specialties because that's not only when the money is to pay off their student debt, but primary care is a, that's a lot of work. 
everybody else is sending you guys their troubled cases or they're saying after they treat them, they say treat and treat and handle after I've screwed them up. So that is totally uh, correct. I've heard of the phrase before that uh, primary care physicians, our reward is not here on earth. It's in, it's in heaven. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I, I, I have a show called Primary Care Cures. I hear this a lot, but um, I'm not knocking specialists, but I am saying that uh, foreign medical graduates overwhelmingly make up the gerontologists in this country and are taking care of the silver tsunami in much larger numbers than American because nobody wants that job. That's not a gig that's you know as desirable as you said as the others. And most times, like sometimes I get it from my colleagues who are specialists. Um, they talk to me and say, Frank, you're a little bit too smart to be in primary care. So primary care is kind of considered that it's considered like, oh, if you're not able to get into any specialties or if you're not good enough for, for this, then you go into primary care. Um, my USMLE scores were way higher than a lot of people who got into specialties, but this is what I wanted to do. And uh, I feel like this is my calling. So it's not a situation of, oh, I wasn't smart enough or this was all, all I could get. Yeah, but at most primary care docs are also dermatologists and psychologists and uh, fill in the blank. There's a lot of subspecialties that fall under primary care that you guys treat. You treat a much, much broader scope than any specialist. That is totally correct. I feel like the, the, the jack of all trades sometimes. Let's talk about exploitation. I walked into a clinic in the heavily Hispanic part of Houston near the one of the airports, and not a single person that worked there spoke English except for the owner, the clinician. And the practice manager didn't, the front desk didn't, none of the patients clearly didn't. So it was a, they were treating either new immigrants or non-citizens at this clinic. Um, so it's a heavy Medicaid clinic, but it was probably also a cash clinic. I'm pretty sure it was a cash clinic. And all of the doctors working there were working at medical assistant wages at 15 to 20 bucks an hour. And they were all trained in Mexico. Now, I know how low the matriculation rate, first of all, how hard it is to get into Mexican medical school, but then how it is to matriculate from their very few percentage that start finish. Um, and here's this guy paying them MA wages and probably doing nothing to accelerate their careers. So I call that exploita exploitation. Do you see some of that yourself? Yes, I do. So unfortunately, um, there's also the increasing cases of Americans actually going to foreign schools because um, medical schools now in America are very, very competitive to get into. So it's not uncommon to see Americans do their first degree here and go to places like in the Caribbean or Dominican or even Mexico to, um, to do their medical school. And they have to take out loans and um, uh, take out personal loans and savings to actualize their dreams. And then to come back, and they're actually American citizens, but they're being treated like second-class citizens because they went to go get their degree from a foreign country. So they have to do what they have to do to survive. So some of them, like I said, are Uber drivers, they... Um, they work on the delivery apps, um, um, delivering food. Um, so a lot of them, because they do not want to lose those connections with medicines, they, they take up all kinds of jobs, medical assistants, scribes. Um, some of them try to go into research. 
So it's very, very, it's very, very tough for these highly trained um, physicians who are unable to further their career because of the bottleneck of residency. And a lot of them too are, are going now to Canada and the UK and, uh, and other countries because during the pandemic, the UK, they passed a law that if um, you have passed your USMLE step one, step two, step three, you can get full registration there as a physician and you can start working immediately. So I think at the end of the day, um, the US will be the will be on the losing end of the argument and there will be a lot of brain drain to an, a lot of other countries like the UK and Canada who, who um, will stand to benefit from the current situation. Well, again, I like what these five or six states are doing where they're just suspending the need to have a residency slot and accepting the FMGs on their own merits uh, with three years of standby you know, training with another doctor. Because you do have to learn our insurance system. It's quite complex and quite stupid and quite cumbersome, but you do have to learn how to code and all of that just takes some time. So let's talk about the growing problem of retiring doctors. Right now in America, we have a roughly 205,000 PCPs and a third of them are over 58 or 59 years old, meaning theoretically they're five years away from retiring. Most of the doctors I know that are 65 don't need to retire or want to retire because they can basically work as a locums or a lot of other medical director, or a lot of other different side gigs uh, and still keep practicing, but maybe not on the hours they were before the responsibilities they had before. So um, we're losing 70,000 people over the next five years, theoretically, and we're only adding 2,000 to 3,000 PCPs out of the medical pro, uh, out of the residencies. So we've got a, not only a grind, you know, grind of a tsunami of silver, uh, silverbacks that are all retiring and going into Medicare, but we also have the same generation is retiring from medicine. So it seems to me like America has to wake up and just sort of change everything about how foreign medical graduates are treated because it's a we're five years away from the crisis. We're not, in, we're not at the crisis level. We're on the edge of the cliff about to fall over. That is so true. And um, I think one of the quick fixes that has been tried to be implemented to fix the issue has been the um, sudden proliferation of uh, physician assistants, or I think like now how they will wish to be addressed now, physician associates and nurse practitioners. A lot of doctors too are not even waiting to retirement to retire. Some of them are retiring very early in their late forties and fifties and switching over to um, non-clinical careers because they are burnt out. They increase documentation and bureaucracy and uh, decrease reimbursements. Um, have actually made people have a rethink of their life. Um, the, there's definitely an increase in physician suicide rates. Um, the COVID obviously did not help. So like you said, this is a serious crisis that's right in front of us. Um, I do not have anything against um, nurse practitioners and physician assistants. I'm actually married to a nurse practitioner. Um, but with a lot of their training, they have less training hours than physicians, and a lot of their programs now are online. Um, when the programs actually first started out, there used to be um, a requirement for the nurses to have five to 10 years of clinical bed 
side nursing experience, which is very, very vital. But now we are seeing cases where people are just finishing um, their BSN in nursing and going straight into nurse practitioner school without having the uh, prerequisite clinical experience, which I think is um, not in their favor. So they do a lot of the programs online. They don't have a lot of clinical hours and clinical experience. And well, to we put it plainly, that you have you got your ten thousand hours um, that Malcolm Gladwell talks about the Beatles got, and that the uh, Apple and the Microsoft co-founders got. You got your ten thousand hours in your residency. If you're working one hundred twenty hours a week in less than two and a half years, you've got ten thousand hours of you know face to face time with patients. Yeah. So don't and get me wrong. I think there is a place for nurse practitioners and physician assistants in the healthcare system, but I don't think it's as a direct replacement for doctors. Um, medicine should be a team-based approach. And like I said, these um, foreign docs are trained and ready to go. Most of them are already specialists in, um, specialist in their respective countries where they are coming from. And I was talking to a colleague the other day in Canada, and Canada now are actually recognizing their um, post-medical school training from their home countries. So if um, an anesthesiologist from Nigeria shows up in Canada, um, they allow them to practice family medicine with anesthesia privileges. The same thing for surgery and emergency room and all of that. And like I said, Ron, you can't say that the Canadian um, healthcare system is inferior to inferior to um, the U.S. medical um, system. Even Dr. Um, Rand Paul, he had surgery a couple of years ago. He actually went to Canada to have the surgery done and paid cash for it. So um, the Canadian system, I think, is um, up there with the American healthcare system. Um, I want to talk about burnout because we touched on it a minute ago. I have. To, like, what I do is I set up allergy clinics in primary care. And so you become friends after 10 years at a clinic with some of the doctors. One of them was Nigerian and one of them was American born. They were burned out. And I, when you get to know them better, they'll tell you the real reason why they're burned out. The American said he had not had a raise in 25 years. He's been earning the exact same within you know, a few thousand dollars for 20 years. And only the, the payoff of his building and the fact that it's going to be fully uh, cash flowing in a couple of years is the only reason he keeps going. The Nigerian doctor has a number of clinics where he lives. He's in a rural area. And he told me he had not paid himself a salary in 10 years, and he's 65. Um, he's living off the rent of his buildings, which is considerable, but it's not why you go to work every morning. You should get paid for your a day's wages. And he sees more patients than all of his other doctors. So um, I, you know, I don't think FMGs are immune from burnout. I think you guys are probably have the same burnout 65% ratio that the, the American docs have, don't you? Yes, I will say burnout is, um, is, is a relative term. Um, typically, FMGs, during their training and their journey to the US, they have to face a lot of adversity. Um, a lot of them, when they first get here, they have to do menial jobs to raise money for their exams and to take care of their families. Um, they might be running away from countries of war and uh, political and e economical turmoil. So when they get to America, um, they really feel like they are in a land of milk and honey with a lot of opportunities. So they are willing to walk the eight hour 
80 hour work week or 90 hour work week and take multiple um, multiple um, calls from different hospitals um, in order to in order to survive compared with um, an American graduate who might not have that um, kind of background and um, foreign grads too uh, they tend to be a little bit more ent entrepreneurial compared with the American um, doctors who are who tend to go into now a more employed mode. Um, speaking of um, allergy uh, programs, I actually had to set up an allergy program in my clinic as a additional um, source of revenue recently, because unfortunately the insurance reimbursements are declining at a very, very fast rate, but the price of doing business is going up. Rent has gone up, mortgages have gone up, um, wages have gone up, but the um, reimbursements are actually going in the opposite direction. So doctors feel like we have to see more patients in order to keep a roof over our head, or we have to add ancillary services to improve our revenue streams in order to stay um, profitable. So it's a it's a very very difficult um, difficult process that takes a lot of toll on our psychological health, our mental health, and uh, and uh, the work life balance. So it's not uncommon. I know a couple of anesthesiologists and orthopedic doctors who have gone into research or academia or working for insurance companies or pharmaceutical companies where um, they don't have to deal with the bureaucracy and documentation um, aspects of healthcare. A lot of people are also going into administration to bring chief medical officers and CEOs of hospitals. So, so to round out this discussion, the most elegant solution for solving our shortage of doctors, if telehealth has already kind of got its boost that it was gonna get because of COVID, it's going to have to be FMGs or international medical graduates, for medical graduates. So what we're talking about here for every 10,000 that we can get slotted and or, or get onboarded quickly, that's 25 million patients that are in a panel that could be served. That is mostly internal medicine and a lot of pediatrics. So it's, it's mostly primary care we're talking about here. And we have we know we have 15,000 PD. I don't know what the internal medicine number is, but it's a little bit less than that. But it's safe to say there's somewhere between 20 and 30,000 or more FMGs that can't get slotted and therefore can't practice in America quite yet. And with only 5,000 IMG slots available in our slotting um, aged 1994 slotting machinery, there's no way we're going to get through all that. They're going to, they've already waited five to seven years. They're going to have to wait another maybe five to seven years. It's stupid. So the simple solution is for states to do what uh, they need to do to get their, their FMGs on board with this three-year uh, apprenticeship. And I think that's going to be the answer without nurses, without the telehealth uh, as a, another answer. And like you said, you hit the nail on the head. Um, the process of having residents in the system, it's a, it's a money maker. Um, I don't know if you um, follow the news a couple of months ago. Um, there was a program, a hospital in uh, Philadelphia that had to be closed due to some logistic situations. And the residency programs in that hospital, they were actually put up for auction. I don't know if you were aware or heard about that. And they, those programs, those residency slots, they were going for millions of dollars. 
So the, the GME actually had to step in and say, hey, you can't just, <laughs> you can't just do a, a short sale, auction sale and sell these this, um, slots. Because like you said, there are millions of dollars in federal funding and grants and, um, and GME funds that all these hospitals get. So those residents um, that were still in training, they had to find other residency programs for them to go to complete their training. But those residency um, programs and those positions were actually sold, um, were sold for a lot of money. So I wanted oh. to, to look that up. It was in uh, Philadelphia. I mean, yeah. I, I know the hospital, <laughs> but I don't, I don't want to mention it for obvious reasons. Well, that's okay. There's, there's, if you take a million eight, which is what they bill these folks out at, and they're paying them 60 grand, um, that's pretty good markup, right? And they're not even paying them 60 because it's federally subsidized. Yes, so yes, zero. yes. They might be paying FICA and FUTA, but I, you know, a lot of them, these nonprofits don't have to pay a lot of yes. taxes. But the bottom line is it's an extremely valuable position. So yeah, that it, it's, an, it's an elegant solution to expand slots, but that's beyond the thinking of, you know, hospital administrators a lot of times. But look, Frank, this has been a great, well-rounded discussion on this subject, and I'm really glad we had you on the show. And um, hopefully in the next five years when we sort of have to do something about this, we will have come to our senses in America and no more Uber drivers as doctors. That's, a, that's our goal here. Yes, I totally agree. Yeah. Well, thanks again, and we'll get you on the show again soon to catch up, okay? Thank you so much, Ron. You all have a great thanks, weekend. Frank. You too. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.